0: welcome to the shark pod the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in ireland and beyond and now live from greystone studios here are your hosts luke curry and mark baker
1: what is up shark nation welcome to another episode of the shark pod i'm here in greystone studios aka my box room mark baker's out there how you doing mark
2: Good. I'm in Glenigiri. it Sounds like I'm in New York. The sirens going off there. Hopefully wow. you can't hear them.
1: I can't hear them at all, Mark. But uh, you're you're very welcome as our co-host as usual. Uh, we've got our guest here today, Greg Canty. How's it going, Greg?
0: I'm very good, and I'm on Cork, Lake.
1: All right. <laughs> do you, know, do you know, I, I have you can a, never tell. You know, we've had a few Corkonians on the um, on the on the podcast, and I remember one in particular. Uh, I I told her that I had never really been to Cork City. Proper, And uh, she was pretty upset with that. So uh, I've been there recently uh, for the only for the first time. And Mark, they do say that the like bit a lot. That's not that's not just something on the TV.
2: So do Dublin people, I suppose, <laughs> it's Just in a slightly different way,
1: <laughs> but, uh, less uh, elongated. But uh, Greg, you're very welcome to the podcast. Uh, Greg is the managing partner of Fusion. Uh, communications uh, marketing and PR firm so really interesting to get uh, uh, get an idea of how that business works as well as uh, Greg's background it seems like a really interesting story we were talking about the about his background just before the podcast and we were talking about how he like Mark Baker is a recovering accountant I uh, started uh, back in the day uh, so I mean let's start at the beginning uh, Greg how do you become uh, from a, an accountant to uh, a PR and marketing? Uh, a business owner a
0: business owner? Yeah, well, it it kind of started even before that. And what I tell everyone is that I started in media when I was 13. Okay. And a little corner shop closed down across the way from our house. And uh, my dad gave me a boot in the arse and said, listen, they sell loads of newspapers. So how about kind of taking over their newspaper business? And we happened to have someone um, from the Cork Examiner living next door to us. So we knocked on their door. Before you knew it, I had 60 newspapers to deliver every morning before we went to school. Nice. And another 40 after school. And I did that from the age of 13 to 21. Really? Yeah. So I tell everyone that, you know, I was in business and media since I was 13. But the amazing thing was that it actually was a business and you had customers and you made money from it. So, that was kind of pretty mind blowing for me. And, you know, when it came to kind of school and making decisions about what you want to do after, uh, I didn't want to go down the college route cause dad had been made redundant. This is now was going back to the eighties, you know, when things were a little bit tough. So I was interested in business. That was my real kind of driver. And someone told me that if you go into an accountancy office at 17, You can, you know, work by day and study by night and you've got different businesses coming in the door to you every single day. I'm sure that was the same for you, Mark. And my God, what a degree in business that I gave you. And at that time in the eighties, it was really interesting uh, because so many of their clients were bleeding. It was a tough, tough time. And you were a 17 year old, an 18 year old, the little junior who was sitting there with, you know, experienced business people you know it it was small to medium-sized businesses for the most part I was just buzzing (laughs) this is just incredible you know you're listening to these privileged conversations and the thing that kind of struck me at the time was we'd rock into a lot of these companies and you'd see all the people working there you know people who've been there 10 15 and 20 years that would never have sat around the boardroom table but you was a plucky you know 17 18 year old you were there listening to all of this and being asked for your opinion and stuff and I thought wow that was that was amazing um so it wasn't from a love of accounting or anything that got me there it was from a love of business and the the thing with me like I qualified at 22 I pretty much just head down I kind of did my did the the hard yards as we went along the way but my kind of motivation was to get more involved in business. So I wanted to go into industry. Um, I joined an American multinational called MOOC, you know, a lot of people think it's the same as a keyboard company. I think that was a different part of the family or whatever. But effectively we were just manufacturing uh, parts for other subsidiaries it wasn't kind of real business it was just i'd say uh, like what a lot of the multinationals in ireland are so i kind of wanted to get into real roll your sleeves up dirty business um so i joined a, a drinks company we manufacture soft drinks it was called dc's it was owned by guinness so i joined there as um financial controller and within a few years i became the general manager of it at i don't know i was 27 28 uh, which is fairly incredible. You know, we had, I don't know, seventy employees, we manufactured soft drinks, but we were again a Guinness subsidiary and we reported into, you know, my bosses in St. James Gate in Dublin. So it was really, really kinda of huge at the time and a great buzz. Um the other little kind of interest that I had at the time though was music. I was hugely passionate about music. So in those intervening years i was kind of booking bands doing a little bit of marketing for them you know getting their kind of press packs going was some press packs really it was like tapes or cds and you're sending them to venue owners hoping to get bookings and we really were we were kind of doing well but i kind of realized quickly that musicians aren't very serious people so you'll be putting um, a bunch of hard work in for them and all of a sudden they have a fight and they yeah, don't, they, they don't want to play together anymore, which is really <laughs> annoying. Um, so that kind of interest in music and interest in business and being an industry. So I was itching to do my own thing. So I ended up um, getting involved in a fast food restaurant with another guy, which quickly followed with music stores. So I opened my own music stores around the country, and we did a bunch of that for a number of years. Um so I had the full time job at the same time, so with those kind of parallel things going uh, all the time. Sorry, that-
1: bit out as well. But it seems like there's a lot. You seem to gather a lot of experience early on in your career. It seems like mm-hmm. by by twenty, uh, kind of mid twenties, twenty eight. Now a lot of people are still just coming out of college, a few years and only going to getting going. Does that still exist? Uh, maybe this is a question for Mark as well. Like does that still exist that type of uh, accountancy as a apprentice model, or you'd start in that way and, and, and go up because I think it seems seems I think, like a lot seems like a yeah, by life. the
2: time I was 27 I was probably one year qualified or something you know so you you go to college you do your three years and then you might do a masters you might do something else so that's five years and then you do your three and a half year or three year training contract and then by that time you're usually going getting into your mid to late 20s and by that time you were almost a, a general manager of a of a of a company like that just does not it just doesn't happen anymore I, d- I don't know why I in my opinion I don't like how long it takes to cause by the time I got to, to 27 I had we had our first child and I was like playing catch-up then do you know what I mean whereas I why did it have to take me so long and I didn't I didn't go traveling for a year or two years or three years I did none of that I just kind of went the route and on the side I can definitely uh, understand the passion projects on the side because I. Was shown in galleries and having an exhibitions. Had one in London all the time during my my accountancy qualification training and stuff. So uh, I think that's I see a lot of uh, correlation to what I've done as well. But um, yeah, no, to answer your question, that it's unheard of to 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 get that far that quick, which is a shame in my opinion.
0: Yeah, no, the the flip side of it, of it, Mark, is that like from seventeen to twenty two, when all my buddies were. You know and j1s and everything else having fantastic summers i was pretty much working studying working studying uh and i got married at 22 as well and had two kids but um yeah so there's a bit of living as well and i, I think there's a lot to be said for uh stocking up that little bit of living along the way when you can do it you know
2: well that's a discussion point we that's yeah. come up a few times i think would you rather get in early and, and do the heavy lifting, get your property, get your, your, your home and um, start investing, doing all that stuff early, which, which to me makes more complete sense, you know, especially with investing, obviously with compounding um, or have your fun and, and then get serious in your late twenties. I, I think in my opinion, everybody has their own opinion. I would say, I would advise my young people that I know to do it early.
0: Yeah,
1: it's funny because well. me and Mark kind of took a different path on that. Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> so I went to college for basically as long as I could. Um, had these amazing summers, like your friends um, out there in Ibiza or uh, or Thailand or wherever it happened to be that summer. Then took two years to go off and uh, you know travel around as well uh, in the mid twenties stuff like that. So I was kind of uh, Mark, you know, it, it, kind of the opposite there. and It worked okay, okay, okay for for me, but I guess that uh, it, it doesn't work out. Every, like like that for everyone. I, I've been quite fortunate with the way things have uh, the way the cookie has crumbled for me. So um it's kinda it, it's a it's so it's difficult to one to kind of say tell young person this is what you should do. I think it goes it's gonna be person by person. You know, if you're yeah. if you're seventeen or eighteen and like <laughs> you you don't know what you want to do, you know, might as well go to college for a few years. At least you have fun.
2: Well uh, yeah they'll definitely but like I don't I you're not going to find out what you want to do if you just go traveling for for a lot of years and try to find no, yourself. That's, or... that's my opinion on it. <laughs> Maybe I didn't have enough fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think you have to do your living at some point. It's just a case of um, when that happens, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And when you're working for the uh, drinks dis- distribution company, is that do you guys have your own products, or is it just a, like a like a like a wholesaler for Guinness products? You're buying it for X and you're selling it for Y, or
0: what, how does that model work? Um, well, at the time it was a mix of everything. So we, sorry about this, guys. Jesus Christ, idea. <laughs> uh, poor Bert gets excited if someone comes to the door or whatever. Um, well, we manufactured our own soft drinks. And they were the days of the kind of everything was in returnable bottles. Um, so if you can imagine, what was being manufactured was the product inside the bottle. Cases and everything else were all returnable. And we also, it, it was kind of like a one-stop shop then, if you go into pubs or restaurants or supermarkets, whereby you also stocked all of the other products. You know, there was a low margin. So your Budweiser long necks, your... Carlsberg, your Coca-Cola, all that kind of thing. So you're a wholesaler, but effectively you made your money on your own soft drinks. That was the kind of the big gross profit stuff. Okay. And it was a really, really profitable business. We had like nine sales reps. We had a big territory,
1: Um,
0: and and it was a really good contributor. Um, And it's kind of funny. I, you know, when we kind of chat to clients and everything, like at the time we were told, you know forget about your own soft drinks these locally made products with locally made ingredients including water and all that kind of stuff you know because it was all about club and Schweppes and big volume big marketing big advertising and the thing that i talk to about with clients you can see now there's a big shift and it doesn't have to be big volume and big marketing budgets you know the emergence of kind of craft breweries and even kind of craft soft drinks and lemonades and all that kind of thing so there's been a big swing back to locally made authentic character not gonna like big you know production massive budgets for everything else and that i think has been the huge shift from when i started to to know and i think a lot of that stuff happened in that kind of social media era um a lot of that stuff happened you know when i i think when you go back to the kind of the the, the the big recession, you know, 2009, 2010, I think we lost faith in our institutions. We lost faith, faith in everything. that was kind of mass produced. We needed things that were authentic and genuine again. That's why I think since then, all of that kind of craft and artisan has literally thrived. And now what you have is the likes of Guinness. Like I I went to work with Guinness in Dublin and St. James Gate for three years, having been with DCs. Um, And now, you know, the Guinness are trying to behave like a craft brewer. Yeah. You see the products that they're bringing out and, you know, products like Smithix, you know, we're nothing but a craft brewery, really. And of course, that's not the case. But when I was there, there was serious consideration being given to killing the Smithix brand. Really? You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. This beer that was barely pouring in pubs anymore. You know, the, um you know, the the, the the how many pints were pouring and how quickly kegs were turning over in the pubs and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of amazing. I know they're like, you know, you have a product that's nearly 200 years old and someone was really going to just chuck it out. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, but it is it's something. It's interesting the how that we lost f- faith in those institutions, and it became way more local. And you can kind of get your story out there a lot, a lot easier now because people in the internet can find you. Like, I'm I'm not a big beer drinker. I don't really like beer, but um, I drink Wicklow Wolf because I moved to Wicklow recently, and I saw their brewery, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, well, you know, I like I like what those guys are doing. Um, yeah, so.
0: that's pretty much it, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Like, I remember in the recession, like. If you think about it, we were all up against the ropes. We had no money. Yet you popped down to your local super value and you spot these kind of like beers that you'd never heard of from places you'd never been to. And they were called IPAs. I had no idea what an IPA was. And I worked in the drinks business. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we had lager and stout and beer. That was about the size of it. and um, And these products were like double the price of your your can of Budweiser, but you were still buying them. And that was at a recession when we had no money. The question I always ask people is why? And they say, well, you know, we want to produce locally made products. Well, a lot of them weren't. And yeah, we want to try things that are different. And okay, some of them were quite different. But I think the big driver behind all of that was they're authentic and genuine. And you feel like you're putting something into your shopping basket that has a bit of soul to it. That's not just yeah mass production or whatever and and i think so many things have gone that way and social media has allowed that kind of thing to flourish you know because i suppose over 10 years ago we didn't have those things so you you needed the big machinery to promote anything but now you don't need that anymore to the same degree it's
1: such an interesting shift like it, it just opens up the the possibilities for businesses Massively because they can just niche down to a very specific type of person. Like I said, they want to use, I think everyone likes to use uh, products with a little bit of soul, with a little bit of like, like even I've got the Roadcaster out of the corner of my eye. I saw like uh, the kind of the road symbol and it kind of looks a bit Danish or a little bit kind of like, you know, a little bit nichey, high techy type thing. And that's why I like it. You know, like that's why I bought this. Like there's a million um, maybe cheaper uh, alternatives that just record podcasts, but this one looked like the type uh, it came across to me like the 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 type of lifestyle i want while uh, recording podcasts i can't explain it but you know what i mean
0: oh i, I get it totally <laughs> it's like why vinyl people are buying vinyl now that they don't have record players do you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> we're, we're collecting things because we want to touch them and we, you know we want to feel them and it makes it feel it makes us feel a little bit different and a little bit special but and the thing we say to our clients that even an insurance broker can be authentic and genuine depending on how they behave an accountancy practice can be that way depending on how you want to portray yourself you know even kind of pure agencies you know you know it, it depends on how you behave out there and um we all want that authentic thing and if i believe in you and i think you're the genuine article but then i want to give you a business and back to that word that we use at the beginning, you know, the, the, the like word, (laughs) if I like you, yeah, let's, let's do business. And I think that's very important. And it's easier now to, to communicate and connect with people on a, on a like basis, if you get what I mean.
1: Absolutely. And it's, so at, at that, at that stage, so you have been working in the drinks industry. Um, so you started in accounting, uh, drinks distribution, then, so you've been at uh, Fusion uh, Communications for eighteen years now. How did that transition happen? I know that you started uh, in media, you know, when you were thirteen. But what's the what's the transition into that kind of uh, yeah, industry? I,
0: like? I, I guess in a way, the, the if I think about those kind of Guinness days. So I'd gone from being the general manager in the drinks company. Then you went to a big monster of a company like Guinness and I was there for three years. I absolutely loved the experience, but I swear to God, there were meetings about meetings, Um, you know, trying to order a pen and get it delivered to you. Like, you know, suddenly you didn't, you didn't even know how things worked anymore. There was a big machinery around everything. And I found it really difficult going from being in charge of the ship to being one of many and playing a small part um i swear to god there were days when i was walking up the yard into saint james gate through those beautiful gates you know and working with incredible people and I'm like there's no reason for me being here today i I couldn't even justify that to myself yeah um and, and if you kind of grew up in that culture and you're doing your own little niche role yeah, that's fine. But I, I couldn't hack it because I wanted to contribute and do bigger things. Um, so it, it was like a degree in marketing having said that, because if you can imagine we had best marketing brains there, yeah. you know, the kind of brand teams and everything. I learned so much. But in terms of that, uh, that feeling yourself about contributing, that wasn't there. Now, I went to work with a, a subsidiary of Heineken then, which is pretty much like what, what I was doing in DC's. They had a similar type company. That was more about getting back to Cork, our young kids and stuff, and I'd been separated. So I needed to get back to be close to them. Um, so I did that for about six years. But really, it was just repeating myself. I was doing the same job, but a different uh, name over the door. I still had the record stores.
1: Yeah, I um, forgot about those.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That yeah. So th- that. And th- that was really interesting. So, i guess in a way there was this kind of um a frustration inside me that i was always trying to do my own thing and the you heard about the fast food stuff well i did that and the music stores with another guy and quickly we realized i didn't like fast food and he didn't like music so we both kind of like split that business and i did the music thing um there were big record stores and big shopping centers, you know, I'd one in Cork and one in Limerick. I'd one in Galway and I'd one in Dublin. Um, But working in a full-time job and running a business like that isn't a very clever idea. (laughs) And and Mark, as an accountant, you know, you know, you might have all the brains about controlling things, but it needs time and energy uh, to actually apply those controls. Like, yeah, we did well at times and we did badly at other times. I got, I got go. Yeah, sorry, Mark. I, I'm
2: just thinking, wh- wh- why did you never go all in with the with the businesses during? Were you afraid to kind of give up the steady money of, of the accountancy? I know I have have been in the past.
0: Yeah, Um, do you know? I think if I loved it enough, I would have jumped in, and if I if I thought it would have sustained me, I probably would. Mm. Um, the, the thing was, we had a manager in each store. Now, the, the other thing is that th- that was Celtic Tiger stuff. Each of the stores were in shopping centers. And there was, you know, rents were... Actually, my rents doubled twice. I, was, I had the music stores for 12 years, and one of the stores, my rent doubled twice. Wow. So if you can imagine, because it's a five-year rent review, so you're rocking along nicely, you're making money, your rent doubles, but the business is still booming, so you're still in business. Then it doubles again. So overnight you go from making money to losing money. And that's that kind of model when you're you a retailer and you're dependent on just landlords and the rates for everything. Now, the thing is, music didn't keep pace with retail because of all the downloads and everything. Um, Could you
2: see that coming at the time? Where, is that yeah, another reason? Oh, yeah,
0: is- totally. Mm. And, and even with music, like... For, for a good period of time, like you would have had the cassettes. And then of course we had CDs and what people were effectively doing was that they, they were replacing their collections by just buying yeah. CDs of all the, all the old music they had. So there was a big trade in that for a while. And then of course we had video and DVD and all that kind of thing. And I remember Titanic. Okay. Here, I'll give you a Titanic moment. So Titanic was being released. It was coming up to Christmas. The pre-orders in the music stores for the Titanic DVD were off the charts. Literally, my God Almighty! I remember being at home watching the Late Late Show, and there was a big announcement on the Late Late Show that I think it was Dunstors and Tesco were going to be selling Titanic tomorrow, and they were going to be selling it cheaper than what I could buy the damn things at. Hey. And it, it was even the kind of distributors and the record companies making a decision that we we want more volume. You know, they're looking at their business model and they think by just giving it to these shopping centers, they were going to get more volume. Sure, it it was just moving it from one place to the other and they were sacrificing volume. And what, what we experienced was a queue of people not buying the CDs, but it was a queue of people trying to get their deposits back. All right. and, and the, even even the whole idea of having to put down a deposit. But it was it was pre-orders because people these were like hot items. And I think that was the kind of shift. So music dipped. The top 30 started selling through the, the, the Tesco and done stores and everything else. And even I go over to one of our done stores and there's one stand of vinyl, you know, yeah. inside and in done stores. You're like what's happened to the, the, the music industry? Mm. And, and, and nothing against stone's stores, we do work for them. Um, but that just, it, it, the, the magic of music just kind of disappeared th- through all of that time, you know, that whole kind of model shifted. So that was a long-winded way, Mark, of getting to your question. So I knew that kind of model wasn't sustainable. So mm-hmm. my objective at that stage was, yeah, I probably need to exit the music business.
2: Just um, a, a quick question on the, on the music business. I'm always interested when I see the likes of Golden Discs, still going. How are they still going? Do you know?
0: Do, do you know? In in the main street in Cork City and Patrick Street. And, and it's funny, actually, there was a huge HMV that was in the Pavilion cinema, that, that outlet. So the cinema's closed and HMV moved in. They had a spectacular store there. HMV closed. And Golden Discs, I think came back from the dead and went in there. I popped in last week at a tiny bit of time, and I was looking for the section with the new releases. I couldn't find it. There was a section with three for twenty euros. There was a big section for vinyl. There was a big section for DVDs. There was a section for a bit of point of sale and merchandise cups and actually cups and. Floor mats, you know, yeah. mats uh, that you put in front of your front doors are going in with kind of like Batman and all that kind of stuff. There was no section for new releases.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And I like, and that that for me is where the music industry has gone.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I, I, I was listening to a podcast with some guys, a, fa- a fantastic uh, songwriter's podcast called Soda Jerker. I'm not sure if you listened to it, too, yeah. two great guys from Liverpool. And they had some band on and they were commenting on the Blue Nile. A fantastic Scottish band, and they were talking about their—they only ever released two albums, and like Blue Nile have four albums, and it just struck me that these young musicians, in their heads, uh, Spotify is the encyclopedia for music. <laughs> you know, you're like you—you you, you fools! <laughs> Not all music mm-hmm. is on Spotify. Yeah. The, the whole thing has just shifted, you know. So, yeah, I, I think they've. Um, that they've, called themselves, they've caused themselves an awful death uh, yeah. with some of the changes that have gone on and they just haven't kept pace with them. I, 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 I have a lot of connections to music. I have a lot of good music friends. Um, my son has done a lot of work uh, around there. He actually sent me, he tweeted out today, um, a, a video that he did has been viewed a billion times. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. um, yeah it, was a, it was a singer called Hosier and the song was Take Me to the Church. Oh, yeah, we all know that one. Yeah, yeah. Great wow, he, did well. that. yeah he did that. He, he directed that and and see th- that there would have been a dotted line through me and the music stores and the tickets we would have got to gigs. Like Brendan's first gig that he ever went to as a kid was Moby, you know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can see where all these kind of lines come from, you know. It's, kind
1: of,
2: it's, it's brilliant good. that you kept your, that passion going. Some people think, you can't, you know, have two things going congruently, like a, a real strong interest and in a different area and and working nine to five. But you know, there is people that prove otherwise. Yeah, it's and tough it's, though. I mean, Trying to find the errors yeah. in the day. I'll, uh, I'll that was that. my golf, Mark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. yeah.
0: And, and you were asking about how did I end up in marketing? Well, doing that job at Heineken, I was getting rid of the music stores. I met my other half, T. Um, she had started fusion 20 years ago i was quite interested in the kind of work that she was doing and she dragged me along to some events and things like that and uh, i thought wow this is actually really interesting and bits and pieces of the work that i had done you know when you were made general manager of the drinks company marketing comes under your jurisdiction when i had that work in dublin with Guinness you were being exposed to sales and marketing the whole time with the work that I was doing with Nash Beverages at um, subsidiary of Heineken. Kind of marketing was, you know, part of your role as well. But I loved that kind of full-on thing. And, um, yeah, so she had a fusion, which, you know, was providing a service for small companies that didn't have their own kind of marketing resource. I thought that was mad. Um, I convinced her to emigrate to Cork. <laughs> Uh, we, you know so I to promise her a dog that that's <laughs> that that was part of that deal Um, so as soon as I could I packed up what I was doing I joined her in Fusion so there was just pretty much the two of us Um, and we became busier and busier we went from working from home to opening an office and then we opened an office in Dublin and yeah 20, Fusion is now 20 years old and it's a it's a good, good, yeah, really good, solid business. When I saw D in those early days, that it's not about the services, it's about the solution that you can bring to people. Like, there's no one that comes through, in my belief anyway, there's no one that comes through our door who wants our services. They want more exposure, they want more business, you know, they want a solution for all those things. And I remember at a, at a very early stage, we had um, a particular account. We were doing their PR and maybe some events for them and stuff like that, some marketing and events and stuff. And that was cool. And I remember Paul was the guy's name. who's the, the general manager of this, this big outlet center. And uh, he said, if I Google outlet shopping, a little shop down the road that sells shoes comes up ahead of me on Google. And, I, yeah, and in a way, he was saying, but that's nothing to do with G-Greg, is it? Not? And I kind of thought, it's not, but it probably should be. Because, you know, someone being able to find him on Google was just as important, it probably even more important, than us doing PR for him and running events for him and all that kind of thing. So I quickly got into a mindset of, you want more business. You want more exposure. So for me, branding—you um, know, your logos, your website, your SEO, your PR, your email marketing, uh, your social media, your crisis PR—that—that—that that, that, they're all pieces of a big toolkit uh, to solve your problem. And I think that's only got more complicated as time has gone on. And I really pity the the marketing manager who's having to have a conversation with a design agency, an SEO agency, a social media agency, a PR agency, an advertising agency, then someone else too, videographers and photographers, and then maybe someone to do podcasts because that's a really innovative thing to do as well. And I think, well, our niche for me and what we tried to construct was um, an agency where you could have one conversation and we could do all of that now, now the, the trick is um, assembling a team of specialists that work in all of those that can do all of those things. But the thinking that I try to uh, instill in all of the team is that they understand the toolkit. You don't have to know how all the tools work, but you need to understand when I need to talk to Greg about this and I need to talk to hear about this and Dee about that so that they know how all the bits work and how they fit together. Um, and they're able to communicate that to clients and kind of write plans in that way and everything. So for me, it's, it's, it's about that, it, it's about executing that mix and knowing how the mix should work and, and when it works.
1: It's so interesting because I work with a lot of, um, uh, like over the years in HubSpot, our main partner base is uh, marketing agencies, I would say, uh, for the 90% of the partners that we have. Um, and it is—it's an interesting conversation because I used to uh, be in direct sales, and I'd bring a, a potential customer to a marketing, uh, a marketing agency, a PR agency. You know, a lot, some companies that have a lot of kind of strings to their bow as well. Um, and because I was selling software, I'm—I'm I'm doing what you're saying there as well. I'm solving a, I'm solving a an issue that they're having, right? Uh, but sometimes when I, because I—I I, I was looking at it, the issue just through one. Lens and say, yeah, that's this is what you need. You need I was selling the machinery, you know, rather than the actual uh, how we're going to do it. Um, so it was great to bring people in like yourselves to kind of flesh that out. But it does make it way more complicated uh, when the, those conversations open because there is so many different aspects to that. And like you said, a marketing manager having to go to everybody under the sun to get a, a project done. Also, how do you track the effectiveness of all those individual? Bits. Is there just like a vision that you'll achieve at some stage that makes it all worth it? It's hard to. I always thought it, it's an interesting business to to sell or the the sales. Every sale must be completely different. Is that your, your oh, take oh
0: Yeah, totally. And and like that, you'll get a call from someone saying, "Can you send me a quote?" And you're like, "No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not possible." Yeah, you know, if we're to do our job properly. You need to come into us brief us about your business and it's only at the point where we fully understand the dynamics of it at least from them that you can start creating a plan and, and in a way you create the plan with them because they'll always have more knowledge than you will uh, you know about their business but we have the knowledge around our tools and how they can be executed um and, and that's when the bit of magic happens and the clients need to kind of stay on board as part of all that, that, that a lot of that stuff you actually do together, you know. Um, and,
1: it, and it's a quite a long-term approach. Do you have customers that we be working with you guys for a long term or is it just a kind of project based? Here's the deliverables. What's the, what's the business setup like?
0: Um, it, it's, it's totally mixed. Uh, Luke, we've got, you know, kind of one-off projects. I'm opening a new business or I have an event. Can you look after that for me? Or, I have a brand new company and I need some logo work done and I need to build my kind of my digital assets or whatever. Um, I might just need some social media consultancy or I'm up Ship Creek. There's a problem, something bad is happening in the business and I think there's going to be a big stink in media. So I need some kind of crisis PR help. So we form a journalist in our team. But the, the 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 real sweet spot for me would be where, where nearly um, the marketing department of the company, okay. And there's a, a a number of clients So where we've big relationships, and, and the the thing with them is, you know, if the, back to that kind of toolkit, if I want to employ an experienced pure person, well, knock yourself out and see how much that's going to cost you. If I want to employ uh, a senior SEO person, again, knock yourself out, see how that how much that'll cost you, or a graphic designer, whereas with us, you know, a typical thing might be a retainer, and so for a fixed amount per month or whatever, which which is based on a plan for the year, an estimate of how much work is involved, they can actually draw on all of those services for one fee yeah. instead of having to you know employ um, a number of different people, and, and and it's funny you know while we're talking about business models, when I met Deirdre first and I heard about this idea of a retainer. I'm like, Oh my God, that sounds like a dream come true, you know? So, (laughs) wow, you just get this money every month and you kind of like help them. But, but when they're executed properly, they're absolutely based on a worked out plan, you know, taking into account all of their activities and that suite of things that they require. Um, and yeah, and it it works out well for everyone, and that's why the model is successful. You know, that's why yeah. you do have lots of agencies out there and everything else. It's
1: it's an incredible way of um, of getting leverage for all those different positions. Like I've got a, a friend, <coughs> excuse me, a friend of mine, and she works. Uh, she's kind of like in, in management and a, a quite a, quite a new company, say two or three years old, and they're growing really quickly. Um, but they've got they've got an interesting business model where they they literally have a, a group of like heads of everything so i think there's uh i don't know 20 something of people and they they work in the office they're the full-time staff but everyone's the head of something and <laughs> whatever the product whatever they do say if the the head of marketing their job is to outsource whatever marketing bits that they need done and they're generally you know I mean? so it's like they so they keep their wage bill really really low and it makes it really flexible of whatever they're doing they can they just go to the market and get the best Uh, you know get experts to fulfill what they need and they're kind of like the brain trust of the business if you know what I mean and I think especially with the the way COVID has changed the way people work I think maybe businesses will be way more open to that than if you hire an SEO person okay how much does that cost you with wages okay it's going to cost you X but also everything Marks an employer as well everything that goes along with keeping them in desk and then if it doesn't work out that's a whole other uh, headache that you have to uh that you have to ha- have as well, so i think i don't know that might be something that's even have a, might have a brighter future that that type of business you know
0: yeah so, um people get staggered when they think about a retainer amount on a month or you know even how much you charge per hour. and and you know mark when you employ someone like there's only so much so many work hours it's not 40 hours a week you know you you don't get that we wouldn't have 40 chargeable hours with any any client it's just Mm -hmm. not possible with with all the admin and all the other bits and then once you work in holidays and all the overheads then you kind of go okay that's that's kind of good value (laughs) um when you're done and dusted you know
2: yeah and marketing is obviously one of those industries that evolves so quickly like it's probably completely different 20 years ago than it is today i'd imagine with the internet and and, and stuff is there any what is there any kind of new innovative strategies that companies are, are are using now or coming down the line that you've seen
0: yeah um do you know in a funny way i nearly see the innovation and in kind of rethinking about what you're doing and um, questioning some of the, some of the, these conclusions you've arrived at. And and just let me explain, like 10 years ago when the wheels had fallen off everything. And like for me, like marketing is a positive activity. And this is funny now, it's just gonna give you a quick one as an accountant, okay. As an accountant, you know the way we think about costs. That there's three types of costs. There's negative costs, the the checks you write that do nothing for you, one way or the other, like your rates and stuff like that. Okay, or maybe insurance, even though that that is necessary. <laughs> um, then you have maintenance costs, which is the cost of servicing the business that comes in. And then you've got positive costs, which is any check that you write, and the purpose of it is to get the wheels to turn to bring in new business. So when you look at your overheads, it's really, really important to have as many positive costs as you have. Now, this isn't an argument for spending loads on marketing, but just when you look at your overheads, it's really important that you've got a healthy percentage. And when the recession hit in over 10 years ago, the, the wonderful accountants rocked up and I was at those meetings, you know, the, the big accountancy practice saying cut out all unnecessary costs. And that, of course, was their marketing and their PR, but well, it's very clever. So now you're going to stop showcasing your business okay so at that time what i what we were pleading with clients was do something and the something was social media you can do it for free you know tell your story you mightn't have the budget for advertising pure but at least do this part and you nearly have to beat them over the head trying to get them to trust social media and do that and a lot of clients they didn't even want to know about it listen no just stay away and now that's turned on its head so now people come through the door saying, "All we want to do is digital marketing. Forget about all the traditional stuff." And in a way, there's a graveyard with analytics, and there's a graveyard with measuring your return on your activity. And, and I think you said it, a while Luke, when you know, you obviously have to measure the effectiveness of everything. And you know this marketing term when 50% of my marketing is working and 50% isn't, but I don't know which 50. So, so now what happens is, well, digital marketing is brilliant because I can track my impressions and I can track my clicks and I can track this and I can track that and I can track the other. So what happens is we only invest in the things that we can track. That doesn't mean the softer things that you were doing, which at times were very effective around, around branding, that doesn't mean they weren't working. But it just means now we've got into this um, straitjacket of only doing things that can be tracked. So, for me, the kind of trend in a way, Mark, is to re examine everything that you're doing and don't get locked into a scenario whereby you're only doing things that can be tracked. Like, likes on your Instagram images mm-hmm. won't necessarily bring you business you know, pumping out activity and impressions and everything else won't necessarily do a few. And it, it, I think it's having a healthy balance of, we probably would have called them kind of traditional activity and social, I think is really important in your marketing mix. Um, and trying to, and, and maybe back to our conversation about being authentic and genuine, including things in your mix where people can see that authenticity and genuineness. Um doing a podcast for example you know where people can hear your voices and and all of that stuff Um, going for traditional PR I think is very important a lot of your digital activity has become wallpaper I think whereas if you get the kind of third party verification from traditional media it actually adds weight to your digital activity so I might to take more notice of your social media campaigns if i've seen something in the newspaper or i've i've witnessed a real kind of physical event now that we're coming out of covid and everything so for me i think the the trick as we're going forward is to maybe get a bit more real again and not chase everything that can be clicked and <laughs> measured it measured in that way
1: i couldn't agree more like i think that and i come from a, a marketing automation business so i that's that's our our bread and butter is figuring out what the analytics are behind campaigns and all that stuff, um, which, which works well in a context if it's a a buy like buy now, click, uh, you know like an e-commerce business or something like that where you can really see, uh, that that kind of track, but if you like, there's still something in the human mind about that social, uh, proof of being in a, a magazine, being in a, a newspaper, some third party like you said. Uh, thinking that you're worth spending their time investigating and and kind of uh, spreading the word about. Um, I know when people, you know, like on LinkedIn and stuff like that, when they, a lot of people share. Sometimes on LinkedIn and stuff, they're sharing uh, pieces of content that are, was created by other people. You know, it's not even theirs. Yeah, and kind absolutely. Of like, if if that was yours, or you had a comment on it, or you had know, they just say, this is great, or. You know, if they were sharing a a news article about their company, I'm like, that's something I'll click into. That's so that's overlap of using an asset that's more in the traditional and kind of bringing it into the digital. But uh, yeah, I, I think especially for businesses that are gonna have a face to face element. Um, I don't know, whatever, uh, financial advisor or something. I, I think seeing those types of businesses in uh, in media and stuff like that, rather than just uh, a Google ad. I, I wouldn't trust Google ad to uh, bring me to the right, you know, the right uh, financial advisor.
0: Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Luke. And, um, and what I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of people putting out genuine content before, you know, you get good traction on social and everything else, like those articles on LinkedIn and, you know, your, with your blog posts and all that kind of stuff. And the, the algorithms have on all of those platforms, have them choked to death. So now if you want to get anything seen, they have to come with an ad budget. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, you know, you might have written a great article and you, know, you now know that to get anyone to see the damn thing, you have to put budget behind it. And ironically, when the word sponsored comes with it, it totally takes you a shot off. It, it, it's gone, isn't it? Yeah. So you lose faith in it. So in a way you've paid money to devalue it, so, which is kind of like weird.
1: <laughs> it's a, um, like I was watching a, a YouTube I forget. I can't even remember who it was about. It was some guy, some American guy that was, uh, he's a marketer, but he, he had this, this concept and it kind of, it kind of scared me. Say if I was a, a I wouldn't like to be in this type of business, but uh, he was saying that, yeah, the, the only way you're going to win online is if you can outspend your competitors. So, his idea was cutting costs to the bone, having a crazy lean business, so you can have a, a, a tighter margin, and then eventually you can spend all that money on ads to you know no one can compete with you, and then Suspense. you can you can up your rates later on. You know? Yeah,
0: but was that Perry Marshall?
1: Uh, I could have been. I could not even remember. I could. Just...
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a guy. He's actually really good. He wrote a, a book on Google Ads, and his name is Perry Marshall. But but some of his um. Rationale about outspending the other guy, yeah, that it's a bit of an arms race, though.
1: I feel like you know, it's like it's like I was talking to I was talking to one of my friends who's a you know, not a he likes to gamble. You know, he likes to go to the casino, let's say, and uh, he was saying, you know, there's a depending on the t- type of um, the type of uh, casino that you're in and the limits and stuff like that. There's a way of you know playing uh, baccarat where you'll you you can kind of beat the game. And what he says is, uh, if you lose, um, you uh, you just keep on doubling your bet because eventually the math works out where <laughs> you will hit, and then you get all your money back plus the original win. All right, um, and then you know, uh, I, I saw I don't not this guy, but I saw some guy hit 20, <laughs> 20 losses in a row, and then you don't have the money to do to double your bet again. Mm um so that i felt that's the, the i felt like that kind of strategy was where okay if they outspend you by one dollar after you sink all your money in you know it's for nothing but um yeah
0: they, i don't know they get you in the end Luke. yeah
1: exactly so mark <laughs> me and mark are heading to the casino after this to test this out but uh before we do that we have a, a kind of a tradition of a, a lightning round here on the on the chart pod that mark has a few questions there that we would like to pick your brain and i think the it could be interesting this time because you've got such a broad experience as well so what what, mark baker what do you think what's the what's on your mind there
2: okay um here's one that is quite relevant to you in particular so what's your favorite social media and why oh wow that's Uh, for you personally rather than businesses
0: yeah twitter um yeah because i do think you've got the ability to influence now having said that at the beginning of this year i deliberately swapped my twitter time to learning time um just reading books because i was <laughs> i was getting hoovered into a negative place and um, maybe it was a COVID thing and a donald trump thing or something and you'd start your day in bad form it, it, it probably is still my favorite but um I, i've definitely backed off it
2: yeah i agree with the, the, the kind of black hole of negativity everybody gets and I'm not a negative person, but you kind of go looking for those tweets that don't annoy drama. you. And I just, I don't do that in any other aspect of my life. So I actually, I stopped using it for a while, mid-COVID as well. Is there <laughs> any, I'm sorry, it probably exists, but a, an app that actually filters out your Twitter of negativity or, is, does that you, exist? Is that possible?
0: You can, <laughs> well, well, you can block keywords on it. So if you want to block the word Trump, you can do oh, it. Okay. So. okay. Yeah, so Trump doesn't, if you want to block the word COVID, you can have have a COVID-free Twitter account.
2: I think that as a service that somebody could do that. I only want to see content from, you know, these people that I like and I don't want to hear that word. And I'd say people would actually pay money for that. Anyway, um, okay, what's the best business idea you never acted upon?
0: Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, yeah. that I've never acted upon, it would be a thing um, for capturing your memories. Um, yeah, my, 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 grand died when she was 99 and she, she nearly hit the big 100. And, and like that, you know, you go through the whole, and my dad passed away a few years back and all that you really have of them is a few bunch of, bunches of objects and stuff. And the, the product will be something that captures the the memories for that person for you to easily access and share and everything. And it's not there. and I think uh, in a way it's um, it's even more difficult to do it. Like remember when my dad passed, Mom had her boxes of old photographs when he was in the American Army and we'd look through them and all that kind of stuff. Now we don't keep any old photographs in scrapbooks mm. and scrapbooks. And I absolutely 100% don't rely on any of our digital uh, platforms to do that for you. So, yeah, it'd be so, something something like that. Because I think the most precious thing you have at the end of the day is uh, it's probably the only thing you have, which is those memories, you know?
2: Mm, I agree. Well, Myself and Luke actually used this format as a bit of a time capsule for something else uh, a while back. And I think that kind of touches upon that, you know, podcasts will... Yeah, you can look back on them. Time. That's
1: like a little time capsule, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, so, Mark Baker, two more questions, because I know we're we're over time here for for uh, Greg. We want to make sure he has some, some sort of evening left.
2: Okay. Um, is it who you know, or is it what you know?
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I think it's what you know. And, and the what you know will bring you to the... You'll, you'll suddenly find the, the who's once you have the, the what's.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: That makes sense. Um, and finally, okay, if you could advise somebody to learn one skill, what would it be?
0: Communications. Um, and I think the skill would be encouraging your kids to do acting or something like that and get them out of themselves. Cause I think communications ultimately with whatever other skills you pick up along the way, um, is a gift that will open any door for you. And mm-hmm. if you're equipped with that little bit of confidence, uh, yeah. And it was, it was, I actually did a podcast with, um, one of my colleagues, her daughters, I was just blown away by this really intelligent, smart kid, but whatever about the intelligence, she had all the kind of social bits and pieces and it came from acting. And I think, um, yeah, my my son, my son, uh, his career changed because he did seven brides for seven brothers in transition year. Yeah. And I think it gave him confidence and uh, creativity and all that kind of thing. So, any, you know, if you could throw a kid into any sort of a discipline whereby they could, yeah, get comfortable on a stage and get out of their heads a little bit, I think that would be a cool thing.
1: I think that's a great one. Yeah. We never had that one on the on the trackpad before. That type of... it makes it makes complete sense, though. I
2: even in business and stuff, and in my career, i I didn't have a I didn't really have that much opportunity to get up and stand up in front of people. But when the opportunity arose. I really made myself just do it and just, I could have stepped down. I could have shied away. And then opportunities just seemed to come. Like the podcast, not being afraid to kind of come on a podcast. Opportunities come from actually getting out there and standing up, speaking. Look, I wrote a book on how to be a, give a best man speech just because I I, I, I tried my best. And then the, the next time it was a bit easier and a bit easier. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a big difference between... Uh, uh, like physical communication and, and and communicating behind a computer screen and i think a lot of kids today have no problem typing away and stuff like that are or, or putting pictures up of themselves but try get them to stand up in front of five of their family and and tell a story and they wouldn't be able to do it you know yeah.
1: like i think it's such an important one and we do have one more um one more question for you greg what would you prefer a shark pod t-shirt or a SharkPod mug? As our gift,
0: <laughs> um, t-shirt.
1: T-shirt is on the way to you, Greg Canty. Thanks very much for being on the podcast tonight. Really, really yeah. interesting story. Love. We'd love to talk about people to people in marketing as well, because marketing is like. There's like I think it was Tony Robbins that said like the there's two things in business innovation and marketing. If you get those two right, you're doing all right. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Who was it that said, "If I had one last dollar, I'd spend it on marketing." <laughs> or was it pure I think it was um, oh my god I wrote a blog about it yeah I'll have to come back to you on that one
1: I think that might be <laughs> the title of this uh, podcast Mark what do you think we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll put it together alright Greg thanks very much for your time yeah. thank you thanks so much you, Greg. chat soon I w-
0: really appreciate it and well done well done with the podcast thank you bye